morning, church. Let us pray. Father, what a wonderful thing it is to see so many pictures of the good news this morning, of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to sing of these things, and now to have the privilege of opening your word and having our hearts drawn toward the Lord Jesus Christ, feeling and seeing the inadequacy of our own flesh to deal with sin and seeing the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. We are so glad to be here and to have the privilege of considering these things together and to believing again their truth. We pray that as we study the Word this morning that you would grant us to understand the things before us and to love them and to apply them rightly to our lives for our own good, of course, but ultimately, Lord, for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15. As you're finding your place there, I'll ask you to stand with me. And we are going to read the entire chapter here at the beginning. Leviticus 15, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom, anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes 
shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her, And her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day... She shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall use one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge, And for him who has an emission of semen, becoming unclean thereby, also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is, for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. You may be seated. Now, I I don't really need to do this, but it would be beneficial to you all to just take a deep breath together. Just in through the nose, out through the mouth. You know, some of you may remember that just a few years ago, we, we studied the entire Song of Songs together on Sunday mornings, and we found that not only did we survive, but we were, we were blessed by it. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. And every time we turn the page of Scripture, we find the Word of God proving Paul true in what he wrote when he, when he wrote that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so we have no reason to expect anything else from Leviticus chapter 15. The challenge with this whole section of Scripture, chapters 11 through 15, and certainly with chapter 15, is to make sense of the significance. If you were to read commentaries on, on this, you'd see scholars really wrestling with what to make of these things. It's, it's quite easy to determine what the language means and what, what the Israelites were intended to do in response to these laws. But what is the significance? And of particular difficulty is why in these chapters do we find 
non-sinful activities resulting in ritual uncleanness. That is, resulting in a person's inability to go to the tabernacle and worship Yahweh. Additionally, why do some of these cases of uncleanness caused by non-sinful activities require a person to bring a sin offering in order to be declared officially clean? And many answers have been suggested over the centuries, but I have landed with, with those holding that these passages point to the deeper spiritual damage done by the fall, and they point to our need for a, a better remedy than those pictured in these chapters. Further, they serve as a warning, both to the Israelites in the, those ancient days and to us today, to live circumspectly, that is, to live carefully in this fallen world, lest we fall into these sins. The, the point is, is quite clearly made in verse 31 that we read toward the end of the chapter. Look at verse 31 again. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. It seems that these laws make the people aware of certain aspects of their fallenness, or certain areas of the human life touched by the fall, where they are particularly susceptible to sin, so that they will be more careful in their lives before God. And, and as maleness and femaleness and human sexuality are such integral parts of what it means to be human, we might have expected that there would be special attention given to those things somewhere in this section of chapters 11 to 15. Our fallenness affects our experience as human males and females. And it, it affects our, our, our sexuality in a host of ways. And thus, the law builds into the lives of the people of Israel constant reminders of, of that danger that lurks within the inappropriate or potentially inappropriate use of these good gifts of God. How many, how many of our sinful hearts have not exploited God's good gifts of maleness and femaleness and sexuality unto sin and unto our own harm. Such reminders are, are always timely and helpful to us, even those of us who are not under the law of Moses. Further, looking at these issues within the context of the law of Moses and, and being reminded that we are not under the law of Moses but under the law of Christ, we're reminded that because of the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, those who repent and believe can not only be saved from the penalty of sins related to this area of human experience, but we can also enjoy freedom from the power of sin, even as we wait for freedom from the presence of sin. So this morning, we'll consider these helpful warnings Warnings to use carefully the good gifts of God. And we will look to Jesus to save us from our sin and to help us function rightly as men and women, individually and in relationships. There's something quite interesting about this chapter in terms of the way that it's structured. And the structure suggests how we're intended to group the various sections of the chapter together. It suggests how we're supposed to think about them. I've used the word chiasm before, C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. This, this passage is structured as a chiasm, and that just means that the material is, 
is ordered in such a way that the first element mirrors or corresponds to the last element in the passage. And the, the second element mirrors or corresponds to the second to last element in the passage and so on and so on until you get to the middle and generally, not all the time, but generally with a chiasm, that, that middle section has some kind of unifying theme that helps us to understand the whole. That's a, charis- a characteristically Hebrew way of writing, a chiasm is. And so what we find in, in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, is the, is the very first little section. It's an introduction. The last three verses, verses, verses 31 through 33, are a conclusion. Then moving down, verse, verse 2b through 15 is, is about abnormal male discharges. The second to last section, verses 25 through 30, are about abnormal female discharges. We move in from there and we, we get to verses 16 and 17. This is normal male discharges. And then the corresponding section in verses 19 through 24, normal female discharges. And then we get to the very center, verse 18, and we find that verse 18 is about marital relations. And so we would be right to recognize by the way that this is structured, that there are layers of, of warning and provision here. The outer layer is, is what we might think of as more serious and concerning in terms of the, the manifestation of trouble. The inner layers pertain to just the normal functioning of, of life as, as human males and females. Now, it's, it's important to note that, that we're, we're not dealing with just any old discharges here, but discharges pertaining to the organs of maleness and femaleness, of, of reproduction. And verse 18 in the middle highlights that for us. Okay, Toward the center, verse 18 and moving out from there into verses 16 through, through 24, indicate that that, that that theme of sexuality, the, the organs of reproduction, that continues because we're talking about the... the the discharge of, of the, the male reproductive organ and then the female reproductive organs. So as we're continuing out, we're still talking about the reproductive organs and their discharges. So it makes sense then as we move out to the very outside that we're continuing to talk about, even as we move into the, that abnormal realm, abnormal discharges, we're still talking about the sexual organs, all right? And it's explicitly so in the bottom section we're talking about the female organs. Now because of this layering, with the more normal issues toward the middle and the more abnormal issues moving outward, we could identify then maybe a couple of layers of significance regarding the impact of the fall on this area of our lives. And so your, your notes reflect that. So for, first of all, because of sin, we struggle with ordinary challenges associated with maleness and femaleness. Because of sin, we struggle with ordinary challenges associated with maleness and femaleness. Human reproduction and, and the pleasure that accompanies it was designed by God and given to man as a gift from Him. We'll not re- rehearse all that we've seen in, in Genesis 1 through 3 over the past few weeks, but part of our functioning in the image of God required us to be fruitful and multiply. Now, as a great kindness to us, 
God made it pleasurable to do so. But as we've seen, that horrific event in Genesis chapter 3 has made everything that we are as humans come under the fall. So every, everything of humanity that could be tainted by the fall was. Even this good gift of human reproduction and sexuality has been touched by sin. That is, these, these, these are good gifts that are not now inherently evil. It's not now that they're bad gifts, but they're good gifts that can be exploited by what are now sinful hearts. And so as we look at verse 18 there, look at, look at 18, verse 18 again. When a, when a man and woman lie together and there's a discharge, as is designed by God, as is a gift from God, they must, they must both wash with water and be unclean until evening. And that may be puzzling to us. They haven't done anything sinful. God gave it to them. It's necessary for procreation. It's necessary for them to do this in order to be fruitful and multiply. And yet now they're ceremonially unclean. What should we make of this? One thing that I would suggest is that it may be similar to the childbearing law of of chapter 12. While nothing sinful has happened, in a sense, this law reminds the people that, that every good thing now exists in a fallen world and could become an occasion for sin. I think it's possible that this law puts the Jewish people in a situation where they are constantly, reflexively returning to God in the wake of sexual activity. Not, not because it is inherently sinful, but because it could become sinful. Every time a man and a wife come together, there is this short period of time, less than 24 hours, short period of time when they are unable to come to the sanctuary. Now, what might that do naturally in them? What, what, what might, they be, might they instinctively move to do? They, they, they might feel that divide. It's written into the law that there's a divide between them. They might then feel that divide and, and seek to address it. Perhaps in the wake of sexual activity, the man and the woman are put in that position of, of tension and, and they, they are then moved to remain mindful of God in this very potent realm of human sexuality. That's a suggestion. But note that of all the things in chapters 11 through 15, if we just think through all of these things that we've studied in chapters 11 through 16, those food laws and, and animal laws, and then the, the childbirth laws, and we saw the skin diseases last week in chapters 13 and 14. Of all these things, the uncleanness that comes, that comes from marital relations is the mildest form. It's the mildest form in the sense that you, you simply wash with water, you wait until evening, and then you're officially clean again. There are no sacrifices required in order to be declared officially clean. That might say something to us about about, about uh, God, God intends us to see this as a good thing, possibly. And certainly we should see it as, as good because God's commanded us to do it. But it, it could be that related to the other things in these, in these sections, God is intentionally tempering our, our view of this and helping us to see this is not intended to be seen as, as, as bad, but we're being warned that we need to be careful with it. Moving out in the chiasm from verse 18 up into verses 16 and 17 and verses 19 through 24, we find, again, we find normal male discharges and normal female discharges respectively. And those two things are, 
there are, there are a couple of things, I'm sorry, that are, that are striking about those sections. While, like marital relations, these discharges involve the mildest of all the levels of uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15, that is, you, you basically just wash and, and then wait, you just wait out the uncleanness, they are at the same time the most infectious of all the, the levels or all the kinds of uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15. They're the most infectious. And we know that because you can become unclean just by touching something that has touched someone who has one of these discharges. And that's not true of these other things in chapters 11 through 15. And that's remarkable that, that, that those two things are true. It's the mildest level of uncleanness. In other words, it goes away very easily. But it's very contagious. You can, you can get it by touching something that has touched someone who has one of these discharges. And that may underline again the idea that there's, there's no inherent sinfulness in functioning as a male and female, no inherent sinfulness in human sexuality, but there's great potential danger. It's possibly what's being communicated here. Now for these center sections of the chiasm, marital relations right there in the middle and then, and then the normal discharges, what it requires of the people, if, if, if we were to just try to put a label on this, we, we, we would just call it just very real but necessary inconvenience what life is like as an adult human in Israel. Very real but necessary inconvenience. It's inconvenient because it's happening all the time. And I don't want to start a gender war here, but there's, there's really nobody that has it easy. Okay? I think the assumption may be that the women would have had it worse. I'll invite you to ask your doctor why a, a, an ancient Near Eastern married woman of childbearing age wouldn't have to deal with verses 19 through 24 all that often. You can talk to your doctor about that or maybe talk to your, your family, whatever. Talk to somebody other than me. I'm not going into it right now. Every time she did deal with it though, her husband's dealing with it too. And every time he's dealing with verses 16 through 18, look at verses 16 through 18, every time he's dealing with that, so is she likely. She, he, she's definitely dealing with it every time he's dealing with verse 18. And if he's a young man, that could be quite often. That could be all the time. This is happening all the time. And on those days, whoever you are, you, you have to be careful about what you touch. And you have, to be, you have to keep track of what you touch so that you can warn everybody around you, hey, be careful, I touched that. I sat there. I lay, I lay down there. Don't go near that. Or, or, or people are likely to get upset at you. Because if they then touch that, then they're unclean un- until evening. You've got to be careful all the time. And maybe that's the point. Not for the literal logistical reasons, but for the spiritual reasons. In, in other words, perhaps the takeaway for the people is not that discharges are gross and God, find, God finds them icky and He doesn't want them anywhere near His, his tabernacle, but maybe the message is this deeper spiritual thing of th- because of the reality of sin, this good gift that God has given has the very real potential to be abused and become dangerous. So be careful. Perhaps God is just putting His people in a position to be careful. So this very real inconvenience observed by law every time this happens has a very real utility in keeping the people vigilant. 
And, and don't forget why we say it's necessary. Verse 31 again tells us, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that's in their midst. Remember what has prompted these chapters, chapters 11 through 15. It was that sin of Nadab and Abihu defiling the tabernacle. And we're going to come back to that next week when we come to chapter 16, Lord willing. We're going to see, we're going to be reminded. That's what this is all about, is preventing the people from having another Nadab and Abihu incident. While there is no sin committed by the man or the woman in verses 16 through 24, the fall has created an atmosphere where great potential danger exists and and the people must be aware of it. Though we are not and never were under the law of Moses, that kind of caution is is helpful for us, is it not? What, What may be some of the dangers that we might want to be aware of? Broadly speaking, just the dangers that come from just functioning normally as males and females. There could be any number of implications that we might draw from, from this first level of, of, of warning. But, but let's consider just a few. First of all, there's just straightforward temptation to sexual sin. God, God has given us Hormones, which are good things. Our hormones are these things that are telling us, hey, this, this thing is a, is a good thing that you need to do. This thing, this thing that you have to do to, to be fruitful and multiply, this is a good thing. We also have the conscience informed by the law of God, and they together say, yes, they add to the conversation going on, yes, good thing, but in the God-designed parameters where it's safe and good. And those parameters are lifelong monogamous heterosexual marriage. Take the good gift outside of that framework and it only leads to malfunction and misery. Now, our, our sinful hearts insert themselves into that conversation and say to the whole crowd, the hormones, conscience, law of God, hey, y'all don't understand how this works. I get what I want. I'm very suggestible though. And I always listen to the hormones. So you you conscience and law of God, y'all go take a hike while the hormones and I do our thing. I always get what I want though. Everybody needs to understand that. That's how the sinful heart thinks, acts, lives. If the hormones suggest that something would be a good idea, that's what I'm doing, so says the sinful heart. The hormones suggest something is not a good idea, well, there's no way I'm doing it. I get what I want. Be aware of that sinful heart. We'll talk more about all of this stuff later in Leviticus. But but secondly, there are also, you may find this surprising, maybe not. I think the more I talk about it, the more it makes sense. There are non-sexual ways that we can sin when our sinful hearts run away with the hormones. And And I won't dwell on this, but a typical scenario is hormone levels leading to desire in a setting that for whatever reason will not allow for fulfillment. Well, how does the heart react in that situation? Well, it rages. And it will sin in all kinds of ways. All, all kinds of non-sexual ways. It will rage because it does not get what it wants. Anger, depression, manipulation, all, all kinds of things. 
a third category, and this is somewhat related and, and similar to others, just temptations related to a, a woman's cycle. And these are not uniquely female sins. And, and not because I'm changing the definition of a woman this morning. A, a husband can sin in response to what's happening in his wife's body. And, and here, here's the thing to, to keep in mind. We're not victims of our hormones. We're not victims of our hormones. The sinful heart desires to abuse them. Hormones are good things that, that enable us to do the things that God has designed us to do. The sinful heart wants to abuse them. And contending with that is a matter of life as fallen male and female. Now, second, just as, as we struggle with ordinary, just ordinary challenges associated with maleness and femaleness, because of sin there are also, there are also these ex- extraordinary challenges associated with maleness and femaleness. Extraordinary challenges associated with maleness and femaleness. And, and that's where these, these other layers in the chiasm take us. Verses 12, 2 through 15 and 25 through 30, where, we, where we're looking now at these abnormal things that are happening. Abnormal discharges. We've gone from marital relations to normal male and female discharges respectfully to now abnormal discharges. And um, he, here... We see something's actually gone wrong. These are still discharges of the reproductive organs. They, they, they represent, though, more of a long-term disease. And they're, they're similar to the previous section that we've just talked about in that anyone who touches something that has been touched by a person with a discharge now becomes unclean too. So it is secondarily contagious. But the difference in this section is that, is that it is the discharge itself is, is of an indefinite time period. It's of an indefinite time period, and it, 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 it is not due to just normal male and female functioning. For those two reasons, it is, it is harder to deal with in terms of getting rid of the ritual clean, uncleanness. And so you, you have an actual sacrifice that has to be, to be brought. When the discharge goes away, whether the male or the whether it's a male or a female, the, the, the person must count seven days, wash their clothes in water, bathe. That's just like the other ones, but 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 this time bring two birds, one for a sin offering and one for an ascension offering. Now these verses suggest that the difficulty of living life in a way that's faithful to and respectful of God in a sinful world as fallen man and woman may go beyond just that, that typical functioning in life where we're trying to keep our sinful heart from taking over these chemicals in our body and, and doing ungodly things. There, there may be extraordinary things that, that, that ha- happen. Life-dominating sins. We might, may find ourselves in places of great difficulty. And so the, the, these sections may be warning about the, the spiritual danger of, of, of someone who just intentionally, deliberately steps outside of God's good design and the things that can happen in their life when that eventuates. So what might be some examples there? I think, I think Leviticus is pointing towards some of the things that we're going to be looking at later in the book. What might be some examples Examples from Leviticus and elsewhere in the Scriptures. Spouses who withhold relations from their spouse. That is a, that is a sexual sin. 
denying the good gift that belongs to one's spouse, as, as Paul characterizes it in 1 Corinthians 7. That is contrary to God's design, just as is giving that same gift to someone that's outside the marriage. It's a, it's a sexual sin. Another example would be a man or a woman who engages in, in sexual idolatry. As obsessed as our, as our culture is with, with these things, the truth is that humanity has tended to make sexuality an, an idol from the very beginning. The norm for the cultures around Israel at, at this time was to mix fornication with pagan worship. Our, our culture is, is less overt about the, the worship component, but idolatrous nonetheless. And, and of course, in, in our day, the, the form perhaps that we're looking at that is most prevalent is, is pornography. There are a number of other examples that, 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 that we could talk about. We won't take any time with them because we'll have opportunity to, to think about them later in, as we study Leviticus. But those would include things like adultery, incest, homosexuality, bestiality, cross-dressing. Now, even as I mentioned some of those things, for some in the room, th- 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 those are so beyond the pale that, that you're, you're already just writing off the warning. Right? I would suggest to you that that's precisely what the law is intended to get you to not do. Others... Others of you, as you, as you hear, hear me rattle off those things, they're very familiar to you because you've struggled with them and, and perhaps even now you feel them tugging at you in some way, in some measure. And, and you know that these are very dangerous animals clawing at you and potentially clawing at your brothers and sisters and you know the danger of opening the door even a crack to one of these it's very dangerous things that we're talking about here now let's call our minds again back to life in Israel this, this that specific time in salvation history and think again about the fact that first of all the norm of life as male and female, of marriageable age, is just necessary inconvenience all the time. Secondly, if there is something more debilitating, like these, these, these outer levels of the chiasm, if there is something more like that, you just have to hope for it to go away and then offer sacrifices for it. At that point, you can return to the realm of Normal, necessary inconvenience. But the best that it ever gets is necessary inconvenience all the time. I I suggest that, that, that the reader is intended to feel gratitude, on the one hand, gratitude for the provision that God has made, but on the other hand, to long for something more adequate, something that will remove the stain of, of that sin deep in the heart, change the heart so that the entirety of the redeemed human can serve God faithfully with a clear conscience. Of course, that brings us finally to this. Christ does that. Christ redeems 
sanctifies and glorifies us as total human beings. Christ redeems, sanctifies, and glorifies us as total human beings. And last week we, we focused particularly on that last component, glorification. Looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. And there's, there's really good reason to, to, to do that in regard to this, this, this area of, of, of human life. And I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to take some, some time to think about that glorious day when the Lord Jesus returns and everything is, is made completely right, including our bodies, and we're removed from the, the, the presence of temptation and our bodies are completely perfect. That's a wonderful thing to think of in regard to this. But for the sake of time, I want to major on sanctification this week. Sanctification is our Christ-bought, Spirit-empowered, progressive transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's the process whereby God actually makes us like Jesus. Now, sanctification can't exist on its own. You can't become like Jesus just out of nowhere. And that's why we don't see people getting better and better. We don't see them getting more and more holy in the Old Testament, but rather we see them getting more and more wicked, don't we? Sanctification can only happen in the life of a soul set free from sin. All the sin of, of God's people was born by Jesus on the cross where he died for it. And, and on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for that sin. And, and since we're talking this morning specifically about, about fallen sexuality, let, let's, let's think particularly about that. The whole gamut of sexual failures, Jesus paid it all. Is that a wonderful thing? For whom is that not good news? Jesus paid it all. We do hear a lot about sexual brokenness, and I, would, and I certainly would never want to deny that that exists. In fact, this sermon is predicated on the fact that it does. So sexual brokenness certainly does exist. But I get a little concerned when I hear believers talking about that brokenness as if it single-handedly sealed up the tomb on the third day, leaving Jesus rotting in the grave. The resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead, that is God's declaration that Christ's payment was sufficient to pay for sin. The resurrection is the Father certifying, yes, Jesus paid it all. Yes, He did. And now He gives life to everyone who repents and believes. Some of us have a deficient gospel that says Jesus paid some. And that shows up in, in, in any number of ways. You, you perhaps continue to bear the guilt of certain sins. It's, it's, it's interesting how we're selective with the sins we continue to carry with us. Some are quite, we're, we're quite happy to allow Jesus to, to pay for on the cross. Others we carry with us. Shame over a particular past sin. And these sexual sins seem to be the hardest ones to, to, to give to Him. And some people struggle with the ability to enjoy this good gift of sexuality in marriage because of things they've done in the past. It can show up in any number of ways, but in whatever way perhaps you have this lingering 
thought, you think there's this lingering stain of sin, I'd encourage you to believe the gospel. He washes sins white as snow. Remember that woman of of Luke chapter 8? It's read for us at the beginning this morning. The woman touches Jesus in faith, and she is completely healed. And, 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 And Jesus comments her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And I would suggest that you should do the same thing. If you have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, others of us have, have a different kind of deficient gospel. It says that, that Jesus paid sin's penalty, but He left me in its power. I, uh, I, I get my prescriptions at, at CVS and Target. And I use me some drugs, okay? I'm what we call a frequent flyer over at CVS. And the more money you spend at CVS... You get, you get free gift cards. You get a $5 Target gift card. So I rack these up. The problem is that the list of exclusions on the gift card is almost exhaustive. So like everything that you would want to buy with the gift card, you can't. It's good for nothing. And some of us think that about sanctification. Sanctification is the gift card. And, and, and sanctif- the sanctification of your sexuality, that's what you want to buy with it. You, you, you think that san- sanctification works for everything but sa- sexuality. The one thing I want sa- sanctification for, it doesn't work for. Not so. There is no disclaimer in the fine print of our salvation that excludes sexuality from the sanctifying work of God. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. As you're turning there, just in the interest of transparency, I want to point out that Romans chapter 6 was not written to the person who thinks, I can't not sin. It was written to the person who thinks, well, maybe I should continue to sin in order that I might display this magnificent grace of God even more. At any rate, it works for us this morning because the, the point that Paul makes is that a lifestyle of sin is incompatible with new life in Christ. A lifestyle of sin is incompatible with the new life in Christ. In other words, if you, if you have been, been joined to Christ in faith, there should be a radical change in life. All right? So we want to begin reading in verse 1. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now jump down to verse 11. 
So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have, brought, who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Paul is saying because Christ died to sin and was raised to walk in newness of life, then if you have been joined with Him, and listen, that's what we pictured this morning when we were taking the Lord's Supper. We're picturing our union with Him. We, we, we're eating His flesh, drinking His blood. That's a picture of our by faith being joined together with Him. So Paul is saying, look, baptism is a picture of the same thing. They're going down into the water, coming up out of the water. They're saying, I identify with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says here, if Christ died and He was raised to newness of life, then if you've been joined to Him by faith, so also have you. And your death was a death to sin, and your resurrection is a resurrection to life, a resurrection of newness of life. You are not enslaved to sin. Anyone who tells you that you are, is a false teacher. You are not enslaved to sin. And you should not allow sin to reign in your mortal bodies. In, in verse 11, where he says, So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's not saying, think that you're not. This is not mind over matter. Pretend that you are. Fake it to make it. He's saying, Think rightly about what you actually are. You you are not alive to sin and dead to righteousness, but you're dead to sin, you're alive to righteousness. This is actually what you are if you're in Christ. You've died to sin, you're alive to righteousness. Now, you may need help with the practical outworking of that. And it it may may take some time to, to break sinful habits. Because you have been giving yourself over to sin as a slave. Paul talks about that later in Romans 6. You've been giving yourself over. You need to break that habit. The power to do so is as real as I'm standing here. Just ask for help. Just ask for help. And we'll, we, we put out this, this offer occasionally. Just Ask for help on our website, on our, on our sign-ups page. You can go to the, the link that says Coffee with a Counselor. And one of, a, one of our counselors will sit down and talk with you. And we'll, we'll talk through with you how to deal with a sin habit. And we would be happy to do that. Now listen, the New Testament authors, as they go back and read passages like Leviticus 15 or, or any other Old Testament passage, they read these passages as if Christ has come. So if he's lived, died, and, and, and risen from the dead. And we should do the same. So, so we should not read Leviticus regarding ourselves as fully trapped under the weight of dead hearts, enslaved to various passions, only mildly and occasionally constrained in them by external laws. No, Christ has come. And he lived perfectly. He died atoningly. He rose victoriously on our behalf. And if we have not turned from our sins and trusted in Him, we should. We should do it right now. 
Because that's the only hope. The only hope. If you have questions about that, ask somebody this morning. I'll be happy to talk to you. Any of the other elders will be happy to talk to you. This room is full of people who can talk to you about that. Do it today. It's the only hope. If you have already done that, then we should embrace the full reality of that good news and walk in newness of life. And again, we may need help with that, but then let's just get the help with it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May it never be. I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we'll have a brief moment of silent reflection. I encourage you to consider with the help of the Holy Spirit what He would have you to do with these things. And may God continue to bless the working of His Word into our minds and hearts. Let's pray. Father, You're a good God. And we, we come before you as, as people, some of us redeemed, some perhaps not redeemed yet. All living in a fallen world, all born sinners, all desperately needing the Savior Jesus Christ, all knowing what it's like to feel that, that, that tug of, of the sinful heart wanting to misuse good things that you've given us. In particular, these good gifts of maleness and femaleness and sexuality. Father, for those who have not ever turned from their sin and trusted in your Son to save them, we pray that today would be the day that you would grant them complete clarity of mind in this moment. Clarity of mind that would grant them to understand the weight of what they're facing, the reality of the judgment that is ahead of them, the truth that they deserve it, just like all the rest of us. They have earned eternal wrath. And Father, would you also help them to see the absolute sufficiency of the shed blood of Christ and His righteousness imputed to the believing. Help them to see the absolute sufficiency of that to save them when they turn from their sin and trust Him. Please move them to do that. Father, the rest of us, we, we just pray that having believed the gospel, you would help us to believe it all the more and to look to Jesus as our, our highest and best delight that we would believe that He is the power to overcome sin, we would, that we would see Him rightly in, in, in the fullness of his, of his saving power, that we would not think that He is, is merely a, a Savior who saves us from wrath, merely from the, the penalty of sin, but He saves us from its power. And we pray, Lord, that You would grant us by the Holy Spirit and perhaps by the help and instruction of other brothers and sisters to learn how to employ the tools that you've given us to walk in the freedom of that truth such that we are people who are not limping around in terms of our broken sexuality, but we're living in, in fullness and clinging to you all the while, but living in joy and fullness. 
We need your help in these things. We pray for it with boldness because you're such a kind God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.